Conan and Friends, a fantasy pulp fiction audiobook podcast. Voice characterizations and sound design by Audiodrama.ai. Conan by Robert E. Howard. Episode 5. The Black Colossus. Part 1. Chapter 1. The night of power, when fate stalked through the corridors of the world like a colossus just risen from an age-old throne of granite. E. Hoffman Price, the girl from Samarkand. Only the age-old silence brooded over the mysterious ruins of Kathkemes, but fear was there. Fear quivered in the mind of Shevatas, the thief, driving his breath quick and sharp against his clenched teeth. He stood, the one atom of life, amidst the colossal monuments of desolation and decay. Not even a vulture hung like a black dot in the vast blue vault of the sky that the sun glazed with its heat. On every hand rose the grim relics of another, forgotten age, huge broken pillars, thrusting up their jagged pinnacles into the sky, long wavering lines of crumbling walls, fallen cyclopean blocks of stone, Shattered images whose horrific features the corroding winds and dust storms had half erased. From horizon to horizon, no sign of life. Only the sheer breathtaking sweep of the naked desert, bisected by the wandering line of a long dry river course. In the midst of that vastness, the glimmering fangs of the ruins, the columns standing up like broken masts of sunken ships, all dominated by the towering ivory dome before which Shevata stood trembling, the base of this dome was a gigantic pedestal of marble rising from what had once been a terraced eminence on the banks of the ancient river. Broad steps led up to a great bronze door in the dome, which rested on its base like the half of some titanic egg. The dome itself was of pure ivory, which shone as if unknown hands kept it polished. Likewise shone the spired gold cap of the pinnacle, and the inscription, which sprawled about the curve of the dome in golden hieroglyphics yards long. No man on earth could read those characters, but Shevatas shuddered at the dim conjectures they raised, for he came of a very old race, whose myths ran back to shapes undreamed of by contemporary tribes. Shevatas was wiry and lithe, as became a master thief of Zamora. His small round head was shaven, his only garment a loincloth of scarlet silk. Like all his race, he was very dark, his narrow vulture, like face set off by his keen black eyes. His long, slender and tapering fingers were quick and nervous as the wings of a moth. From a gold-scaled girdle hung a short, narrow, jewel-hilted sword in a sheath of ornamented leather. Shevatas handled the weapon with apparently exaggerated care. He even seemed to flinch away from the contact of the sheath with his naked thigh, nor was his care without reason. This was Shevatas, a thief among thieves, whose name was spoken with awe in the dives of the mall and the dim, shadowy recesses beneath the temples of Bel, and who lived in songs and myths for a thousand years. Yet fear ate at the heart of Shevatas as he stood before the ivory dome of Cuthchemes. Any fool could see there was something unnatural about the structure. The winds and suns of three thousand years had lashed it, yet its gold and ivory rose bright and glistening as the day it was reared by nameless hands on the bank of the nameless river. This unnaturalness was in keeping with the general aura of these devil-haunted ruins. 
This desert was the mysterious expanse lying southeast of the lands of Shem. A few days' ride on camelback to the southwest, as Shevatos knew, would bring the traveller within sight of the great river Styx at the point where it turned at right angles with its former course and flowed westward to empty at last into the distant sea. At the point of its bend began the land of Stygia, the dark-bosomed mistress of the south, whose domains, watered by the great river, rose sheer out of the surrounding desert. Eastward, Shevatas knew, the desert shaded into steps, stretching to the Harkanian kingdom of Turan, rising in barbaric splendor on the shores of the great inland sea. A week's ride northward, the desert ran into a tangle of barren hills, beyond which lay the fertile uplands of Koth, the southernmost realm of the Hyborian races. Westward the desert merged into the meadowlands of Shem, which stretched away to the ocean. All this Shevatas knew, without being particularly conscious of the knowledge, as a man knows the streets of his town. He was a far traveller, and had looted the treasures of many kingdoms. But now he hesitated and shuddered before the highest adventure and the mightiest treasure of all. In that ivory dome lay the bones of Thugra Khotan, the dark sorcerer who had reigned in Kathshemiz three thousand years ago, when the kingdoms of Stygia stretched far northward of the great river, over the meadows of Shem and into the uplands. Then the great drift of the Hyborians swept southward from the cradle land of their race near the northern pole. It was a titanic drift, extending over centuries and ages. But in the reign of Thugra Khotan, the last magician of Kathkamese, grey-eyed, tawny-haired barbarians in wolfskins and scale mail, had ridden from the north into the rich uplands to carve out the kingdom of Koth with their iron swords. They had stormed over Kathshemese like a tidal wave, washing the marble towers in blood, and the northern Stygian kingdom had gone down in fire and ruin. But while they were shattering the streets of his city and cutting down his archers like ripe corn, Thugra Khotan had swallowed a strange, terrible poison, and his masked priests had locked him into the tomb he himself had prepared. His devotees died about that tomb in a crimson holocaust, but the barbarians could not burst the door, nor ever mar the structure by maul or fire. So they rode away, leaving the great city in ruins, and in his ivory-domed sepulchre, great Thugra, Khotan slept unmolested, while the lizards of desolation gnawed at the crumbling pillars, and the very river that watered his land in old times sank into the sands and ran dry. Many a thief sought to gain the treasure which fables said lay heaped about the mouldering bones inside the dome, and many a thief died at the door of the tomb, and many another was harried by monstrous dreams to die at last, with the froth of madness on his lips. So Shevatas shuddered as he faced the tomb, nor was his shudder altogether occasioned by the legend of the serpent said to guard the sorcerer's bones. Over all myths of Thugra Khotan hung horror and death like a pall. From where the thief stood, he could see the ruins of the great hall wherein chained captives had knelt by the hundreds during festivals to have their heads hacked off by the priest king in honor of Set, the serpent god of Stygia. Somewhere nearby had been the pit, dark and awful, wherein screaming victims were fed to a nameless, amorphic monstrosity which came up out of a deeper, more hellish cavern. Legend made Thugra Khotan more than human. His worship yet lingered in a mongrel-degraded cult whose votaries stamped his likeness on coins to pay the way of their dead over the great river of darkness of which the Styx was but the material shadow. 
Shevatas had seen this likeness on coins stolen from under the tongues of the dead, and its image was etched indelibly in his brain. But he put aside his fears and mounted to the bronze door, whose smooth surface offered no bolt or catch. Not for naught had he gained access into darksome cults, had hearkened to the grisly whispers of the votaries of Skelos under midnight trees, and read the forbidden iron-bound books of Vathalos the Blind. Kneeling before the portal, he searched the sill with nimble fingers. Their sensitive tips found projections too small for the eye to detect, or for less skilled fingers to discover. These he pressed carefully, and according to a peculiar system, muttering a long-forgotten incantation as he did so. As he pressed the last projection, he sprang up with frantic haste and struck the exact center of the door, a quick sharp blow with his open hand. There was no rasp of spring or hinge, but the door retreated inward, and the breath hissed explosively from Shevatas's clenched teeth. A short, narrow corridor was disclosed. Down this the door had slid, and was now in place at the other end. The floor, ceiling, and sides of the tunnel-like aperture were of ivory, and now from an opening on one side came a silent, writhing horror that reared up and glared on the intruder with awful, luminous eyes. A serpent twenty feet long, with shimmering, iridescent scales. The thief did not waste time in conjecturing what night-black pits lying below the dome had given sustenance to the monster. Gingerly he drew the sword, and from it dripped a greenish liquid exactly like that which slavered from the scimitar fangs of the reptile. The blade was steeped in the poison of the snake's own kind, and the obtaining of that venom from the fiend-haunted swamps of Zingara would have made a saga in itself. Shevatas advanced warily on the balls of his feet, knees bent slightly, ready to spring either way like a flash of light, and he needed all his coordinate speed when the snake arched its neck and struck, shooting out its full length like a stroke of lightning. For all his quickness of nerve and eye, Shevatas had died then but for chance. His well-laid plans of leaping aside and striking down on the outstretched neck were put at naught by the blinding speed of the reptile's attack. The thief had but time to extend the sword in front of him, involuntarily closing his eyes and crying out. Then the sword was wrenched from his hand, and the corridor was filled with a horrible thrashing and lashing. Opening his eyes, amazed to find himself still alive, Shevatas saw the monster heaving and twisting its slimy form in fantastic contortions, the sword transfixing its giant jaws. Sheer chance had hurled it full against the point he had held out blindly. A few moments later, the serpent sank into shining, scarcely quivering coils as the poison on the blade struck home. Gingerly stepping over it, the thief thrust against the door, which this time slid aside, revealing the interior of the dome. Shevatas cried out. Instead of utter darkness, he had come into a crimson light that throbbed and pulsed almost beyond the endurance of mortal eyes. It came from a gigantic red jewel high up in the vaulted arch of the dome. Shevatas gaped, inured, though he was to the sight of riches. The treasure was there, heaped in staggering profusion. Piles of diamonds, sapphires, rubies, turquoises, opals, emeralds, ziggurats of jade, jet, and lapis lazuli, pyramids of gold wedges, tyrocolis of silver ingots, jewel-hilted swords in cloth, gold sheaths, golden helmets with colored, horsehair crests or black and scarlet plumes, 
silver-scaled corslets, gem-crusted harness worn by warrior kings, three thousand years in their tombs, goblets carven of single jewels, skulls plated with gold, with moonstones for eyes, necklaces of human teeth set with jewels. The ivory floor was covered inches deep with gold dust that sparkled and shimmered under the crimson glow with a million scintillant lights. The thief stood in a wonderland of magic and splendor, treading stars under his sandaled feet. But his eyes were focused on the dais of crystal which rose in the midst of the shimmering array, directly under the red jewel, and on which should be lying the moldering bones, turning to dust with the crawling of the centuries. And as Shevatas looked, the blood drained from his dark features. His marrow turned to ice, and the skin of his back crawled and wrinkled with horror, while his lips worked soundlessly. But suddenly he found his voice in one awful scream that rang hideously under the arching dome. Then again the silence of the ages lay among the ruins of mysterious Cuthchemets. Chapter 2 Rumours drifted up through the meadowlands, into the cities of the Hyborians. The word ran along the caravans, the long camel trains plodding through the sands, herded by lean, hawk-eyed men in white kaftans. It was passed on by the hook-nosed herdsmen of the grasslands, from the dwellers in tents to the dwellers in the squat stone cities, where kings with curled blue-black beards worshipped round bellied gods with curious rites. The word passed up through the fringe of hills where gaunt tribesmen took toll of the caravans, the rumours came into the fertile uplands where stately cities rose above blue lakes and rivers. The rumours marched along the broad white roads, thronged with oxwains, with lowing herds, with rich merchants, knights in steel, archers and priests. They were rumours from the desert that lies east of Stygia, far south of the Cothian hills. A new prophet had risen among the nomads. Men spoke of tribal war, of a gathering of vultures in the southeast, and a terrible leader who led his swiftly increasing hordes to victory. The Stygians, ever a menace to the northern nations, were apparently not connected with this movement, for they were massing armies on their eastern borders and their priests were making magic to fight that of the desert sorcerer, who men called Natok, the Veiled One, for his features were always mask. But the tide swept northwestward, and the blue-bearded kings died before the altars of their pot-bellied gods, and their squat-walled cities were drenched in blood. Men said that the uplands of the Hyboriums were the goal of Natok and his chanting votaries. Raids from the desert were not uncommon, but this latest movement seemed to promise more than a raid. Rumor said Natok had wielded thirty nomadic tribes and fifteen cities into his following, and that a rebellious Stygian prince had joined him. This latter lent the affair an aspect of real war. Characteristically, most of the Hyborian nations were prone to ignore the growing menace. But in Karaja, carved out of Shemite lands by the swords of Kothic adventurers, heed was given. Lying southeast of Koth, it would bear the brunt of the invasion, and its young king was captive to the treacherous king of Ophir, who hesitated between restoring him for a huge ransom or handing him over to his enemy the penurious king of Koth, who offered no gold, but an advantageous treaty. Meanwhile, the rule of the struggling kingdom was in the white hands of young Princess Yasmela, the king's sister. Minstrels sang her beauty throughout the western world, and the pride of a kingly dynasty was hers. But on that night, her pride was dropped from her like a cloak. 
in her chamber, whose ceiling was a lapis lazuli dome, whose marble floor was littered with rare furs, and whose walls were lavish with golden friesework, ten girls, daughters of nobles, their slender limbs, weighted with gem-crusted armlets and anklets, slumbered on velvet couches about the royal, bed with its golden dais and silken canopy. But Princess Yasmela lolled not on that silken bed. She lay naked on her supple belly upon the bare marble like the most abased suppliant, her dark hair streaming over her white shoulders, her slender fingers intertwined. She lay and writhed in pure horror that froze the blood in her lithe limbs and dilated her beautiful eyes, that pricked the roots of her dark hair and made goose flesh rise along her supple spine. Above her, in the darkest corner of the marble chamber, lurked a vast shapeless shadow. It was no living thing of form or flesh and blood. It was a clot of darkness, a blur in the sight, a monstrous night-born incubus that might have been deemed a figment of a sleep-drugged brain, but for the points of blazing yellow fire that glimmered like two eyes from the blackness. Moreover, a voice issued from it, a low, subtle, inhuman sibilance that was more like the soft, abominable hissing of a serpent than anything else, and that apparently could not emanate from anything with human lips. Its sound, as well as its import, filled Yasmela with a shuddering horror so intolerable that she writhed and twisted her slender body as if beneath a lash, as though to rid her mind of its insinuating vileness by physical contortion. You are marked for mine, princess, came the gloating whisper. Before I wakened from the long sleep I had marked you, and yearned for you, but I was held fast by the ancient spell by which I escaped mine enemies. I am the soul of Natok, the veiled one. Look well upon me, princess. Soon you shall behold me in my bodily guise, and shall love me. The ghostly hissing dwindled off in lustful titterings, and Yasmela moaned and beat the marble tiles with her small fists in her ecstasy of terror. I sleep in the palace chamber of Akbatana, the sibilances continued. There my body lies in its frame of bones and flesh, but it is but an empty shell from which the spirit has flown for a brief space. Could you gaze from that palace casement you would realize the futility of resistance? The desert is a rose garden beneath the moon, where blossom the fires of a hundred thousand warriors. As an avalanche sweeps onward, gathering bulk and momentum, I will sweep into the lands of mine ancient enemies. Their kings shall furnish me skulls for goblets. Their women and children shall be slaves of my slaves. Slaves. I have grown strong in the long years of dreaming. But thou shalt be my queen. O oh, princess, I will teach thee the ancient forgotten ways of pleasure. We... Before the stream of cosmic obscenity which poured from the shadowy colossus, Yasmela cringed and writhed as if from a whip that flayed her dainty bare flesh. Remember, whispered the horror, the days will not be many before I come to claim mine own. Yasmela, pressing her face against the tiles and stopping her pink ears with her dainty fingers, yet seemed to hear a strange sweeping noise, like the beat of bat wings. Then, looking fearfully up, she saw only the moon that shone through the window with a beam that rested like a silver sword across the spot where the phantom had lurked. Trembling in every limb, she rose and staggered to a satin couch where she threw herself down, weeping hysterically. The girls slept on, but one who roused, yawned, stretched her slender figure and blinked about. Instantly she was on her knees beside the couch, 
her arms about Yasmela's supple waist. Was it? Was it? Her dark eyes were wide with fright. Yasmela caught her in a convulsive grasp. Oh, Vatiza, it came again. I saw it, heard it speak. It spoke its name. Natok, it is Natok. It is not a nightmare. It towered over me while the girls slept like drugged ones. What? Oh, what should I do? Vatiza twisted a golden bracelet about her rounded arm in meditation. Oh, princess, she said. It is evident that no mortal power can deal with it, and the charm is useless that the priests of Ishtar gave you. Therefore seek you the forgotten oracle of Mitra. In spite of her recent fright, Yasmela shuddered. The gods of yesterday become the devils of tomorrow. The Kothians had long since abandoned the worship of Mitra, forgetting the attributes of the universal Hyborian god. Yasmela had a vague idea that, being very ancient, it followed that the deity was very terrible. Ishtar was much to be feared and all the gods of Koth. Kothian culture and religion had suffered from a subtle admixture of Shemite and Stygian strains. The simple ways of the Hyborians had become modified to a large extent by the sensual, luxurious, yet despotic habits of the East. Will Mitra aid me? Yasmela caught Vates's wrist in her eagerness. We have worshipped Ishtar so long. To be sure he will. Vatiza was the daughter of an Ophirian priest who had brought his customs with him when he fled from political enemies to Courage. Seek the shrine. I will go with you. I will, Yasmela rose, but objected when Vatiza prepared to dress her. It is not fitting that I come before the shrine clad in silk. I will go naked on my knees as befits a suppliant lest Mitra deem my lack humility. Nonsense. Vartesa had scant respect for the ways of what she deemed a false cult. Mitra would have folks stand upright before him, not crawling on their bellies like worms or spilling blood of animals all over his altars. Thus objugated, Yasmila allowed the girl to garb her in the light sleeveless silk shirt, over which was slipped a silken tunic bound at the waist by a wide velvet girdle. Satin slippers were put upon her slender feet, and a few deft touches of Vatiza's pink fingers arranged her dark, wavy tresses. Then the princess followed the girl, who drew aside a heavy gilt-worked tapestry and threw the golden bolt of the door it concealed. This led into a narrow, winding corridor, and down this the two girls went swiftly, through another door, and into a broad hallway. Here stood a guardsman in crested gilt helmet, silvered cuirass and gold-chased graves, with a long-shafted battle-axe in his hands. A motion from Yasmela checked his exclamation, and, saluting, he took his stand again beside the doorway, motionless as a brazen image. The girls traversed the hallway, which seemed immense and eerie in the light of the cressets along the lofty walls, and went down a stairway where Yasmela shivered at the blots of shadows which hung in the angles of the walls. Three levels down, they halted at last in a narrow corridor whose arched ceiling was crusted with jewels, whose floor was set with blocks of crystal, and whose walls were decorated with golden freezework. Down this shining way they stole, holding each other's hands, to a wide portal of guilt. Vatiza thrust open the door, revealing a shrine long forgotten, except by a faithful few, and royal visitors to Karaja's court, mainly for whose benefit the fane was maintained. Yasmela had never entered it before, though she was born in the palace. Pain and unadorned in comparison to the lavish display of Ishtar's shrines, there was about it a simplicity of dignity and beauty characteristic of the Mitran religion. 
The ceiling was lofty, but it was not domed, and was of plain white marble, as were the walls and floor, the former with a narrow gold frieze running about them. Behind an altar of clear green jade, unstained with sacrifice, stood the pedestal whereon sat the material manifestation of the deity. Yasmela looked in awe at the sweep of the magnificent shoulders, the clear-cut features, the wide straight eyes, the patriarchal beard, the thick curls of the hair, confined by a simple band about the temples. This, though she did not know it, was art in its highest form, the free, uncramped artistic expression of a highly aesthetic race, unhampered by conventional symbolism. She fell on her knees, and thence prostrate, regardless of Vertesa's admonition, and Vertesa, to be on the safe side, followed her example, for after all she was only a girl, and it was very awesome in Mitra's shrine. But even so, she could not refrain from whispering in Yasmela's ear, This is but the emblem of the god. None pretends to know what Mitra looks like. This but represents him in idealized human form, as near perfection as the human mind can conceive. He does not inhabit this cold stone, as your priests tell you Ishtar does. He is everywhere, above us and about us, and he dreams betimes in the high places among the stars. But here his being focuses, therefore call upon him. What shall I say? whispered Yasmela in stammering terror. Before you can speak, Mitra knows the contents of your mind, began Vaitesa. Then both girls started violently as a voice began in the air above them. The deep, calm, bell-like tones emanated no more from the image than from anywhere else in the chamber. Again Yasmela trembled before a bodiless voice speaking to her, but this time it was not from horror or repulsion. Speak not, my daughter, for I know your need came the intonations like deep musical waves beating rhythmically along a golden beach. In one manner may you save your kingdom and saving it, save all the world from the fangs of the serpent which has crawled up out of the darkness of the ages. Go forth upon the streets alone and place your kingdom in the hands of the first man you meet there. The unechoing tones ceased and the girls stared at each other. Then, rising, they stole forth, nor did they speak until they stood once more in Yasmela's chamber. The princess stared out of the gold-barred windows. The moon had set. It was long past midnight. Sounds of revelry had died away in the gardens and on the roofs of the city. Karaja slumbered beneath the stars, which seemed to be reflected in the cressets that twinkled among the gardens and along the streets, and on the flat roofs of houses where folk slept. What will you do? whispered Varteza, all a-tremble. Give me my cloak, answered Yasmela, setting her teeth. But alone in the streets, at this hour, expostulated Vatiza. Mitra has spoken, replied the princess. It might have been the voice of the god or a trick of a priest. No matter, I will go. Wrapping a voluminous silken cloak about her lithe figure and donning a velvet cap from which depended a filmy veil, she passed hurriedly through the corridors and approached a bronze door, where a dozen spearmen gaped at her as she passed through. This was in a wing of the palace which led directly onto the street. On all other sides it was surrounded by broad gardens, bordered by a high wall. She emerged into the street, lighted by cressets placed at regular intervals. She hesitated, then, before her resolution could falter, she closed the door behind her. A slight shudder shook her as she glanced up and down the street, which lay silent and bare. This daughter of aristocrats had never before ventured unattended outside her ancestral palace. 
Then, steeling herself, she went swiftly up the street. Her satin-slippered feet fell lightly on the pave, but their soft sound brought her heart into her throat. She imagined their fall echoing thunderously through the cavernous city, rousing ragged, rat-eyed figures in hidden lairs among the sewers. Every shadow seemed to hide a lurking assassin, every blank doorway to mask the slinking hounds of darkness. Then she started violently. Ahead of her, a figure appeared on the eerie street. She drew quickly into a clump of shadows, which now seemed like a haven of refuge, her pulse pounding. The approaching figure went not furtively, like a thief, or timidly, like a fearful traveller. He strode down the nighted street as one who has no need or desire to walk softly. An unconscious swagger was in his stride, and his footfalls resounded on the pave. As he passed near a cresset, she saw him plainly, a tall man in the chain-mail hauberk of a mercenary. She braced herself, then darted from the shadow, holding her cloak close about her. Saha, his sword flashed half out of his sheath. It halted when he saw it was only a woman that stood before him, but his quick glance went over her head, seeking the shadows for possible confederates. He stood facing her, his hand on the long hilt that jutted forward from beneath the scarlet cloak, which flowed carelessly from his mailed shoulders. The torchlight glinted dully on the polished blue steel of his greaves and bassinet. A more baleful fire glittered bluely in his eyes. At first glance she saw he was no Cothian. When he spoke she knew he was no Hyborian. He was clad like a captain of the mercenaries, and in that desperate command there were men of many lands, barbarians as well as civilized foreigners. There was a wolfishness about this warrior that marked the barbarian. The eyes of no civilized man, however wild or criminal, ever blazed with such a fire. Wine scented his breath, but he neither staggered nor stammered. Have they shut you into the street? He asked in barbarous Cothic, reaching for her. His fingers closed lightly about her rounded wrist, but she felt that he could splinter its bones without effort. I've but come from the last wine shop open. Ishtar's curse on these white-livered reformers who close the grog houses. Let men sleep rather than guzzle, they say. Aye, so they can work and fight better for their masters. Soft-gutted eunuchs, I call them. When I served with the mercenaries of Corinthia, we swilled and wenched all night and fought all day. Aye, blood ran down the channels of our swords. But what of you, my girl? Take off that cursed mask. She avoided his clutch with a lithe twist of her body, trying not to appear to repulse him. She realized her danger, alone with a drunken barbarian. If she revealed her identity, he might laugh at her or take himself off. She was not sure he would not cut her throat. Barbaric men did strange, inexplicable things. She fought a rising fear. Not here, she laughed. Come with me. Where? His wild blood was up, but he was wary as a wolf. Are you taking me to some den of robbers? No, no, I swear it. She was hard put to avoid the hand, which was again fumbling at her veil. Devil bite you, hussy, he growled disgustedly. You're as bad as a Harkanian woman with your damnable veil. Here, let me look at your figure anyway. Before she could prevent it, he wrenched the cloak from her, and she heard his breath hiss between his teeth. He stood holding the cloak, eyeing her as if the sight of her rich garments had somewhat sobered him. She saw suspicion flicker sullenly in his eyes. Who the devil are you? he muttered. You're no street waif, unless your leman robbed the king's seraglio for your clothes. Never mind. She dared to lay her white hand on his massive ironclad arm. 
Come with me off the street. He hesitated, then shrugged his mighty shoulders. She saw that he half believed her to be some noble lady who, weary of polite lovers, was taking this means of amusing herself. He allowed her to don the cloak again and followed her. From the corner of her eye, she watched him as they went down the street together. His mail could not conceal his hard lines of tigerish strength. Everything about him was tigerish, elemental, untamed. He was alien as the jungle to her, in his difference from the debonair courtiers to whom she was accustomed. She feared him, told herself she loathed his raw, brute strength and unashamed barbarism, yet something breathless and perilous inside her leaned toward him. The hidden primitive chord that lurks in every woman's soul was sounded and responded. She had felt his hardened hand on her arm, and something deep in her tingled to the memory of that contact. Many men had knelt before Yasmela. Here was one she felt had never knelt before anyone. Her sensations were those of one leading an unchained tiger. She was frightened and fascinated by her fright. She halted at the palace door and thrust lightly against it. Furtively watching her companion, she saw no suspicion in his eyes. Palace, eh? he rumbled. So you're a maid in waiting? She found herself wondering with a strange jealousy if any of her maids had ever led this war eagle into her palace. The guards made no sign as she led him between them, but he eyed them as a fierce dog might eye a strange pack. She led him through a curtained doorway into an inner chamber, where he stood, naively scanning the tapestries, until he saw a crystal jar of wine on an ebony table. This he took up with a gratified sigh, tilting it toward his lips. The teaser ran from an inner room, crying breathlessly, Oh, my princess! Princess! The wine jar crashed to the floor. With a motion too quick for sight to follow, the mercenary snatched off Yasmela's veil, glaring. He recoiled with a curse, his sword leaping into his hand with a broad shimmer of blue steel. His eyes blazed like a trapped tiger's. The air was supercharged with tension that was like the pause before the bursting of a storm. The teaser sank to the floor, speechless with terror, but Yasmela faced the infuriated barbarian without flinching. She realized her very life hung in the balance. Maddened with suspicion and unreasoning panic, he was ready to deal death at the slightest provocation, but she experienced a certain breathless exhilaration in the crisis. Do not be afraid, she said. I am Yasmela, but there is no reason to fear me. Why did you lead me here? he snarled his blazing eyes darting all about the chamber. What manner of trap is this? There is no trickery, she answered. I brought you here because you can aid me. I called on the gods, on Mitra, and he bade me go into the streets and ask aid of the first man I met. This was something he could understand. The barbarians had their oracles. He lowered his sword, though he did not sheathe it. Well, if you're Yasmela, you need aid, he grunted. Your kingdom's in a devil of a mess, but how can I aid you? If you want a throat cut, of course. Sit down, she requested. Vatiza, bring him wine. He complied, taking care, she noticed, to sit with his back against a solid wall where he could watch the whole chamber. He laid his naked sword across his male-sheathed knees. She glanced at it in fascination. Its dull blue glimmer seemed to reflect tales of bloodshed and rapine. She doubted her ability to lift it, yet she knew that the mercenary could wield it with one hand, as likely as she could wield a riding whip. She noted the breadth and power of his hands. They were not the stubby, undeveloped paws of a troglodyte. With a guilty start, 
She found herself imagining those strong fingers locked in her dark hair. He seemed reassured when she deposited herself on a satin divan opposite him. He lifted off his bassinet and laid it on the table and drew back his coif, letting the male folds fall upon his massive shoulders. She saw more fully now his unlikeness to the Hyborian races. In his dark, scarred face, there was a suggestion of moodiness. And without being marked by depravity or definitely evil, there was more than a suggestion of the sinister about his features, set off by his smouldering blue eyes. A low, broad forehead was topped by a square, cut, tousled mane, as black as a raven's wing. Who are you? she asked abruptly. Conan. A captain of the mercenary spearmen, he answered, emptying the wine card a gulp and holding it out for more. I was born in Cimmeria. The name meant little to her. She only knew vaguely that it was a wild, grim hill country, which lay far to the north, beyond the last outposts of the Hyborian nations, and was peopled by a fierce, moody race. She had never before seen one of them. Resting her chin on her hands, she gazed at him with the deep, dark eyes that had enslaved many a heart. Conan of Shimeria, she said. You said I needed aid. Why? Well, he answered, any man can see that. Here is the king your brother in an Ophirian prison. Here is Karth plotting to enslave you. Here is this sorcerer screaming hellfire and destruction down in Shem. And what's worse, here are your soldiers deserting every day. She did not at once reply. It was a new experience for a man to speak so forthrightly to her, his words not couched in courtier phrases. Why are my soldiers deserting Conan? she asked. Some are being hired away by Karth, he replied, pulling at the wine jar with relish. Many think Karaja is doomed as an independent state. Many are frightened by tales of this dog Natok. Will the mercenaries stand? she asked anxiously. As long as you pay us well, he answered frankly. Your politics are nothing to us. You can trust Amalric, our general, but the rest of us are only common men who love loot. If you pay the ransom, fire asks, men say you'll be unable to pay us. In that case, we might go over to the King of Koth, though that cursed miser is no friend of mine, or we might loot this city. In a civil war, the plunder is always plentiful. Why would you not go over to Nadok? she inquired. What could he pay us? he snorted. With fat-bellied brass idols he looted from the Shemite cities. As long as you're fighting Natok, you may trust us. Would your comrades follow you? she asked abruptly. What do you mean? I mean, she answered deliberately, that I am going to make you commander of the armies of Koraja. He stopped short, the goblet at his lips, which curved in a broad grin, his eyes blazed with a new light. Commander, Kram, but what will your perfume nobles say? They will obey me. She clasped her hands to summon a slave, who entered bowing deeply. Have Count Thespides come to me at once, and the Chancellor Taurus, Lord Amalric, and the Aghar Shupras. I place my trust in Mitra, she said, bending her gaze on Conan, who was now devouring the food placed before him by the trembling Vatiza. You have seen much war. I was born in the midst of a battle, he answered, tearing a chunk of meat from a huge joint with his strong teeth. The first sound my ears heard was the clang of swords and the yells of the slaying. I have fought in blood feuds, tribal wars, and imperial campaigns. But can you lead men and arrange battle lines? Well, I can try, he returned imperturbably. It's no more than swordplay on a larger scale. You draw his guard, then stab, slash, 
and either his head is off or yours. The slave entered again, announcing the arrival of the men sent for, and Yasmela went into the outer chamber, drawing the velvet curtains behind her. The nobles bent the knee, in evident surprise at her summons at such an hour. I have summoned you to tell you of my decision, said Yasmela. The kingdom is in peril. Right enough, my princess. It was Count Thespides who spoke, a tall man whose black locks were curled and scented. With one white hand he smoothed his pointed moustache, and with the other he held a velvet chaperone with a scarlet feather fastened by a golden clasp. His pointed shoes were satin, his coat hardy of gold-broidered velvet. His manner was slightly affected, but the thews under his silks were steely. It were well to offer Ophir more gold for your royal brother's release. I strongly disagree, broke in Taurus the Chancellor, an elderly man in an ermine-fringed robe, whose features were lined with the cares of his long service. We have already offered what will beggar the kingdom to pay. To offer more would further excite Ophir's cupidity. My princess, I say as I have said before, Ophir will not move until we have met this invading horde. If we lose, he will give King Cossus to cough. If we win, he will doubtless restore his majesty to us on payment of the ransom. And in the meantime broke in Amalric, the soldiers desert daily, and the mercenaries restless to know why we dally. He was an Nemedian, a large man with a lion-like yellow mane. We must move swiftly, if at all. Tomorrow we march southward, she answered, and there is the man who shall lead you. Jerking aside the velvet curtains, she dramatically indicated the Sumerian. It was perhaps not an entirely happy moment for the disclosure. Conan was sprawled in his chair, his feet propped on the ebony table, busily engaged in dawing a beef bone, which he gripped firmly in both hands. He glanced casually at the astounded nobles, grinned faintly at Amalric, and went on munching with undisguised relish. Mitra, protect us, exploded Amalric. That's Conan the Northron, the most turbulent of all my rogues. I'd have hanged him long ago were he not the best swordsman that ever donned hauberk. Your Highness is pleased to jest, cried Thespides, his aristocratic features darkening. This man is a savage, a fellow of no culture or breeding. It is an insult to ask gentlemen to serve under him. I count Thespides, said Yasmela. You have my glove under your baldric. Please give it to me, and then go. Go, he cried, starting. Go where? To Koth or to Hades, she answered. If you will not serve me as I wish, you shall not serve me at all. You wrong me, princess, he answered, bowing low, deeply hurt. I would not forsake you. For your sake, I will even put my sword at the disposal of this savage. And you, my lord Amalric? Amalric swore beneath his breath, then grinned. True soldier of fortune, no shift of fortune however outrageous, surprised him much. I'll serve under him, a short life and a merry one, say I, and with Conan the throat slitter in command, life is likely to be both merry and short. Mitra, if the dog ever commanded more than a company of cutthroats before, I'll eat him, harness and all. And you, my Aga, she turned to Shupras. He shrugged his shoulders resignedly. He was typical of the race evolved along Koth's southern borders, tall and gaunt, with features leaner and more hawk-like than his purer-blooded desert kin. Ishtar gives, princess. Fatalism of his ancestors spoke for him. Wait here, she commanded, 
and while Thespides fumed and gnawed his velvet cap, Taurus muttered wearily under his breath, and Amalric strode back and forth, tugging at his yellow beard and grinning like a hungry lion. Ismea disappeared again through the curtains and clapped her hands for her slaves. At her command, they brought harness to replace Conan's chainmail, gorget, solarets, kuluras, pauldrons, jambes, quisses and salit. When Yasmela again drew the curtains, a Conan in burnished steel stood before his audience. Clad in the plate armor, Visa lifted and dark face, shadowed by the black plumes that nodded above his helmet. There was a grim impressiveness about him that even the Spardees grudgingly noted. A jest died suddenly on Amalric's lips. By Mitra, said he slowly, I never expected to see you cast in coat armor, but you do not put it to shame. By my finger bones, Conan, I have seen kings who wore their harness less regally than you. Conan was silent. A vague shadow crossed his mind like a prophecy. In years to come, he was to remember Amalric's words when the dream became the reality. Thank you for listening. Conan and Friends is an In Shambles production. 